I thought it'd be useful to talk a little bit tonight about what it is that hinders or gets in the way of the ease of the body and the mind. What's the problem? <laughs> At least as the Buddha deconstructs it for us and for us then that's you know really useful pointing out instructions so that yeah we can borrow some of the insight doesn't really liberate our hearts but it uh, clarifies how to practice so why not learn from people done the practice before us and one of the things I've always liked and found interesting, especially in the early Buddhist tradition, um, which, you know, you can, at least <coughs> here in the West, is somewhat spare. It's not really the same in Thailand and Burma. It can be quite rich and ornate, you know, the monasteries and the temples. But, uh, you know, in practice centers here or in Asia, the real devotional object, you know, like when we think about, well, what would I be willing to get on my knees and put my head on the ground for? You know, what am I really respectful of, devoted to, care about? Because it's not a person who lived 2,600 years ago. I mean, that's a person who lived 2,600 years ago. So it's, it's some, something here. I mean, we might externalize it. They had this problem, you know, even all the way back at the time of the Buddha, you know, how to depict the path. And they had things like an empty cushion, you know, sort of like, of course, they didn't have cushions, they sat on the round ones, but, you know, they had a little blanket or something, but nobody on it. That was one depiction. Another was the, some of you seen the Dharma wheel, there's probably some around the retreat center, Dhamma Chaka, Dhamma wheel. Because Dhamma, Dharma, you know, this word you probably have heard, sometimes simply translated as the teachings, but it's really more than the teachings of an awakened one, it's what those teachings point to. So in a deeper sense, this is Dhamma. Even ignorance is Dhamma, right? Confusion. Dhamma is the way that it is. And, and so in a way, you know, <laughs> If you want to be a little bit smart when you go home and, oh, so you're at a Buddhist retreat center. I suppose, you know, you did all kinds of devotional things. So what is it that you're devoted to? And you can just answer calmly, reality, <laughs> or the way it is. Because that's, that's really true. You know, that's our devotional object. And, and we want to have... Uh, I mean, in the same way that I had, I grew up Catholic and got indoctrinated in, in really good ways, actually. I'm not, I'm not complaining at all. I had a pretty good experience in the Catholic Church growing up and went to Catholic school for eight years 
and my parents were quite involved in the church, and so then I was too. And as a young teen, sang in the choir. That was sort of the late '60s, early '70s. So there's kind of folk music in Catholic churches back then. It's kind of nice. Not on Sunday Mass, but Saturday evening Mass. <laughs> the people who didn't want to go to, because you have to go to church every week when you're a Catholic, and they, some, I think after Vatican II, they decided, well, let's let people who want their Sundays free be able to go on Saturday evening. Some of you are not, and you probably remember. And that and they allowed us to have kind of folk rock Masses. Anyway, until I got sort of 15, and then, you know, my imagination and questions took me other places. But, you know, there's a lot of devotion in most religious spiritual traditions. It's an important emotion. And some of us are more have more of that devotional energy than others, but I think probably all humans have some. And so we want to access it because there's a lot of energy with it. And as you're finding out, it takes energy to be interested in the present moment because <laughs> the force of habit is formidable. You know, habits towards distraction and going down the same pathways of planning this and thinking about that and imagining this and, you know, those things that we've done uh, hundreds of times before, the mind wants to do it again. It doesn't want to recognize that this experience is being known here and now in the present moment. So there's a chant um, that they do in the monasteries. I know Ethan was just at uh, a Bayagiri in California not too long ago, and they probably do this chant where they, they chant the blessings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the refuges. And when they chant, uh, you know, blessings and respect for the Dhamma, they use this particular way of talking about our object of devotion, our real love, our one true love. <laughs> so just in case you don't know, Dhamma is the Pali version and Dharma is the Sanskrit. So there are a few words. Um, the later Buddhist traditions, the Mahayana and Vajrayana, often, um, I mean, some of those texts are in Chinese and Tibetan, but the original uh, Mahayana texts were in Sanskrit, but the early Buddhist texts uh, are in Pali, two ancient Indian languages that kind of are the root of Hindi now today. And it's an Indo-European language. So just so you know the difference there. Now let us chant in praise of the Dhamma, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One. Apparent here and now, that's the first attribute. It's apparent here and now. <coughs> is it? <laughs> <coughs> but whatever this is, is Dhamma. So it, it, you see, it, it's nice to know that because it sort of shifts like, really? <laughs> because you know, it seems mundane, you know, like what's that line from Shakespeare's play, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing, full of sound and fury signifying nothing, right? 
seems that way when we watch your mind all day. But it's, <laughs> but it's not the content, it's the whole natural movement of this, that's Dhamma. But it's apparent here and now, these are the clues from the Buddha, timeless, encouraging investigation. I like this one especially. There's something about opening to the way it is that it's like when the heart is opening to the way that it is, curiosity arises. Now we think, I need to be curious in order to open to the way it is, but it's kind of the other way around. If we really want interest, remember I, on that first night, or maybe the first morning I said, uh, interest is a good way to understand what wise effort is, but it's like this chicken and egg thing. It's not easy to be actually interested. So it's more about what are the supporting causes for authentic interest? Not, I guess I have to be interested, but real interest. Like I mentioned that example, like um, I saw, oh boy, it must have been a six foot snake pretty close to the father's cabin. I'm not sure what kind it is, but it, it looks like the kind we have in Minnesota that are about this long, gardener snakes we call them, but they're just bigger out in the Northwest. <laughs> didn't, look, didn't look like it was telling me it was dangerous. But you know, when we see something like that, you know, the, the interest is just, I'm not trying to be interested. <laughs> I'm just interested. And somebody mentioned, I think in the small group, I forget, about seeing a baby owl, right, on the ground. I saw somebody today mindfully staring at the very large anthill, <laughs> which are truly amazing, right? You don't have to try to be interested. It's a little dizzying when you get too close. You just see the buzz of life, you know, and I, that's a lot of work. For those little creatures to build a mound that high, that's impressive. Nature is impressive, it's awe-inspiring, right? And interest is just there. So apparent here and now, timeless. And, and timeless is really pointing to that um, concepts, which, you know, time is a concept. Concepts do not apply. That's what that timeless means. So apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards, and you maybe translate that possibly as from gross to subtle. So inward, because even inward of course is a concept, but it, there is this, like from what's on the surface, which is mostly our interpretation, to something more subtle, more um, underlying, the underlying nature, as opposed to the surface nature. So encouraging investigation, leading inwards, to be experienced only for oneself, 
usually people, um, my teachers would say about this, like, no one can do it for us. One of our elders in our lineage, this recent early Buddhist lineage that's come here to the West in the last 50 years, Manindaji, an Indian man, would say things to like Joseph Goldstein when he was practicing there with him in Bodh Gaya in the late 60s, where the Buddha's already done his work. Now it's your turn. Right? Like, the Buddha's work didn't do our work. Right? But the Buddha having done his work, and then his capacity to articulate how that was for him, we have that advantage, right? We have to do our work, but we have the articulation from the Buddha and other wise elders before us. You know, they're conveying, I mean, with concepts, but they're conveying a map for us. And they're, they also exist as sort of living examples. I mean, even those who passed away, they did it, you know. The image that Buddha used is like a mother cow who fords the river and then stops and looks across the river and does that lowing call to the calves, like, you have to do this and you can do this and I can't really help you, <laughs> but you can do this. And uh, that's sort of uh, the description the Buddha uses for, you know, our wise Sangha. One of the more technical meanings of Sangha, which gets used more generally as spiritual community, is an, are like the awakened ones who are lowing for us, you can do this, you can do this, you can keep showing up. And the last attribute of Dhamma is realizable by the wise. So there's only one supporting cause for realizing Dhamma the way it is, wisdom. And actually, it's wisdom to have gotten ourselves here, and it's wisdom that's kept us here, you know, and it's wisdom that keeps us doing our best to start over when we notice, right? Because wisdom is, even, you know, it may not be as much wisdom as we'd like, but even, you know, it's wisdom that knows, well, I could probably sneak off in the woods and watch a video on my phone. <laughs> but it's wisdom that knows, like, that's just the same old, same old. I mean, it might be somewhat entertaining for a few minutes, but then, you know, I'll be racked with guilt. And then when I go back, it's just going to feel really awkward. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, that's wisdom. Wisdom is sort of, I, I know it's a little, hopefully funny, but it can also be a little bit provocative to say it this way. But it's also wisdom that realizes we're cornered. It's like, this is the only way out. The only way, if the disease, the human disease that leads to the, the big mess we're in, in so many ways, you know, with racism and climate crisis and economic injustice and, you know, all the ways, just that suffering begetting suffering, 
And uh, so what's the way out? You know, we might think like, well, get a lot of money and then move into a gated community, but people have tried that, and it doesn't really work. I mean, it's nice to have a comfortable place to live, for sure, but there isn't, like, pretending that there isn't suffering is its own version of suffering. You know, being disconnected from the way it is, the, just on the surface level, how we're treating each other not wanting to know and keeping ourselves from knowing is tremendous suffering. And it's never done. You know, we have, like, keeping ignorant. <laughs> so then, uh, you know, we find our way in relationship to this devotional object, Dhamma, the way it is. And we kind of, initially, a lot of our faith, our confidence, is we have uh, seen a lot of our ignorance, you know, our deluded thinking. Have you noticed some of your deluded thinking in the last couple of days? You know, it's like loud and clear, so vivid, the sort of silly things, the mind, it's not you, but the, just the conditioned nature of our mind, just like an incessant waterfall, or you could call it vomiting, <laughs> endless storytelling and meaning-making, and, and a lot of it is just ridiculous, right? And so we know, and then it doesn't take much stepping back to realize this is what makes up most of the world. Uh, the human world, right? Just a lot of chasing things that are ultimately not that important. I mean, the amount of energy and intelligence that goes into kitchen gadgets <laughs> and different kinds of foods, you know, it's just like, and where does that end? You know, I mean, I, I enjoy the different textures and flavors and visual experience of food as much as anybody, but I've gotten pretty clear that it's not making me happy. And just to make sure, I finished the chocolates that I brought from Minnesota. <laughs> sure enough, didn't make me happy. I didn't even get a chance to offer Shelly any. <laughs> Fortunately, I have a couple left from with the staff at Cloud Mountain leave in the teacher's uh, basket. They have a little basket with oranges and apples and bananas and lint chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's true confessions. <laughs> but it's, it's really uh, that seeing the nature of our delusion and our collective delusion don't let that go to waste. That's a powerful force for faith. Faith in Dhamma. Like, this is not it. And um, what would generally rear its head at that point is some kind of nihilistic thinking. Well then, what's the point? Nothing matters, right? But we have to see that too. Like, okay, 
I mean, basically, it's totally pragmatic. The Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, is totally pragmatic. So if you have some nihilistic thoughts, like, what the heck, why put myself through this torturous activity called Buddhist retreat practice? You know, I'll just, yeah, so it doesn't matter, so it's a mess, and there's a lot of hateful things going on, and, um, you know, I'll just find some little corner and uh, get a couple of subscriptions to HBO Max and, <laughs> and try to write it out. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we want to do sometimes. And then we just honestly pragmatically ask, well, how does that work for me? I mean, we've all tried that to some degree, you know, that more cynical, giving up approach, whether we drink or we consume too much media or, you know, what we do to fill up the space of our life. What we miss is that kind of pragmatic, compassionate wisdom that says, well, honey, how's that working for you? Is it helping? Practically helping? Is it onward leading? Is it leading to somewhere you want to go? Because you're on your way. We're all on our way somewhere. Is this where we want to go? What we're, you know, we're planting seeds. We're cutting grooves. What's that line from neuroscience? Neurons that fire together, wire together. Have you heard that? So it's like, you know, we're living our life a particular way. Then that means the neurons are firing a particular way. That, that way then of relating gets easier to relate that way, you know, to continue relating that way. So even though it can feel, um, I mean, I use the word on purpose, it's so provocative, cornered, but it's that can, that tension of, of really being established and I've learned a few things from life, mostly what isn't the way, right? And then, and then, then wisdom, you know, that practical, pragmatic wisdom go, well, you don't have any clues, you know? And it might be like, maybe we heard something wise, or maybe just distilling our own experience, like, well, when did the heart feel less burdened? When did the heart feel naturally light and easy? And we might remember times of just giving, you know, just doing some service, not, nothing even extraordinary, but just being a good friend and how light the heart was when we were doing something good. Oh, oh well, maybe I'll just, that would just be one data point but that's relevant. Like, I didn't feel that oppressed. I didn't feel that burden in life. Even though it was the same life situation, but at that time, the heart felt light, felt uplifted, felt somewhat free. And there may have been other moments, right? And then we hear these teachings too. And we check them out. Because... We we're out of other options, right? So we check them out. Well, what happens, like the Buddha says, you know, 
they use this, uh, in the tradition, they use this simile as the Buddha as a doctor diagnosing the disease. Right? We have this, we certainly have disease. And uh, yeah, okay, you have this element of, of wrong view. And this wrong view has been shaped by wrong thinking. And the wrong ways of thinking, patterns of thinking, is shaped by misperception. So we're not actually connected. We think we're connected, but we're not actually connected because the habits of misperceiving, which lead to habits of thinking based on misperception, which ossify into wrong view, wrong understanding, you know, having beliefs that just simply don't line up with the way it is. And, you know, then in Buddhism, we often talk about taking things personally, you know, and it just goes unquestioned. Like when we feel pain in the knee or pain in the back, that we just, when someone would say, well, it's just throbbing being known. It, it feels like this insult to us. Like, how dare you tell me? What my, we don't want to be curious because we already know. Anybody think they don't know what pain is? Of course, we, we're arrogantly certain that pain is, what's the next word? Bad. Or I didn't hear what you said. But. Misery. Misery? Misery. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And because that we're so arrogantly sure, we're never curious about physical discomfort. Even mild physical discomfort, because we know that's on the way to less than mild physical discomfort. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so we get trapped by our wrong view. And, and the three things work together. You know, the misperceiving generates the thinking, generates the view, but the view then really shapes how we perceive things. And that's the sort of vortex of samsara, the cycles of suffering, that's what samsara means. That there's something self-fulfilling or there's a feedback in our patterns of suffering and it has to do with being disconnected. And it's this dynamic of not seeing clearly, not being intimate. Some of you might know Bhante Gunaratana. I think this was in a, one of his earlier books, um, Mindfulness in Plain English. He's been teaching here in the West for many, many decades. He's quite old in his uh, early 90s, maybe even mid-90s now. Started a um, monastery in West Virginia, of all places. <laughs> He's from Sri Lanka, and uh, called Bhavana Society. And uh, he has this line, this is a paraphrase, we're so distracted by distractions that we don't even realize we're distracted. And so, if that's the case, then the Buddha's, you know, as the doctor who diagnoses us with wrong view, like, our understanding doesn't line up with reality. 
And we kind of know that because we definitely judge a lot of people based on that all the time. You know, we, I mean, it's almost like we could say that to two-thirds, three-quarters of people we know. Your understanding does not line up with reality. <laughs> it's the polite way of saying you're stupid or you're wrong. I mean, we, don't we think that way a lot? Even in traffic. <laughs> whatever you're thinking, whatever you're imagining, it's just not the way it is. We'd like to say that to people. And it doesn't, you know, trouble is, it doesn't occur to us until we're in this environment and we just start seeing how strange and off the meaning-making process of the mind can be. And it just begs the question, well, how much uh, how much else am I not understanding clearly? <laughs> I catch this sometimes because I, I have kind of a critical mind. I, recently, this isn't that, that long ago, um, but I noticed that uh, I, I don't take showers, I like to take a bath, and I noticed that the bathtub was dirty and uh, and it just sort of, I just, you know, I, I, was, I know I'm still the Buddha, so I'm not I'm supposed to be okay with this. <laughs> but I, it just was there, kind of, in my mind, in my mind, and I just thought, kept coming up, like, it's not okay, I should say something. Not okay, not okay. And then, I don't know, this is like, probably came up, I'm not kidding, like over the course of maybe 24 hours, maybe a little bit less, maybe at least 12 hours, it was just bubbling. And, uh, and then it just like dawned on the mind, like I just sort of started kind of doing a better uh, deconstruction of the timeline. <laughs> and I realized, I, I did scrub the tub, but I didn't at the very end, kind of, and I realized I had left that mess. <laughs> and this is like, I'm just giving this as an example, but I see this and it's not just that I'm older, that, I mean, I, this happened to my mind when I was younger. <laughs> you know, just these lapses of in meaning, like, like believing something that turns out to be not true at all. And, uh, I mean, another example of this is just, um, you know, I always considered myself a pretty progressive person. I've done a lot of work around, you know, racism and the worked in the school. Uh, school systems where it was really important to be somewhat culturally fluent. But, you know, in the, I mean, now it's been a little bit longer, but maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, you know, just realize how little I knew. <laughs> and, and part of that little I knew was masked by thinking that I knew, right? And that's a, one of the better definitions of ignorance Delusion is thinking that we know. And we just, in so many different places in life, we think that we know. And then we're not curious, we're not open, we're not collecting data anymore. So then views don't change. And that's that samsara is that, that mechanism of the view, which is the more subtle meaning-making part of the mind, and then thinking, how we think, the patterns of thinking, the ways that we think, 
and perceive, how we perceive. And this becomes sort of a self-fulfilling oppressive system. And, and we need to break free of that. And the way we break free is this process of, that Shelley and I have been talking about, you know, stabilizing present moment awareness. And even having some humility, what does it even mean to be aware? If that's all we did for a five-day retreat, is just moment and as many moments as we remember, like, what is it to be aware right now? What is the experience of awareness? And kind of getting what it is, like, well, let me focus. Because we learn a lot when we catch the mind thinking, well, I should focus on something. Where's the breath? You know, come back to the breath. Can't do it right. But, <laughs> but we totally miss the neurotic, greedy, controlling thing. It's like the elephant in the room is being known. Well, no, we're not aware of that elephant in the room. Like trying to be the good Buddhist meditator is being known. But we don't know that, right? Because we think it's about connecting to the breath. Focusing on something. Just let me focus on something. <laughs> Tell me what to focus on. <laughs> it's funny with Saido Tejaniya, this uh, wonderful Burmese teacher that has been an uh, important teacher for both of us. And uh, we're all kind of, you know, people have been trying forever. And of course, all these teaching strategies arise in certain contexts. So uh, Saida, as a teacher, arose in this context in Burma where the Mahasi tradition was very strong. This is a Mahasi Saida, was a very well-known Buddhist monk in Burma and quite influential in the Buddhism that's come here to the West, early Buddhism in particular, Theravada Buddhism. So it's you know had a, quite a bit of an influence on my practice and many of our practice, people who are teaching now. And, uh, and so Saido Tejaniya's teaching was a response for what got a little off in the Mahasi tradition, which was a little tight, a little controlling, a little um, too, you know, the, it's easy for the effort to get out of balance, where you're always mentally noting what's next. That's the basis of the technique. You're making a silent mental note, which is really great technique. Um, everyone should know how to name, oh, this is being known, planning mind is being known, right? That's, it's not exclusive to the Mahasi tradition, it's just that that is uh, in those retreats, you're doing that every few seconds. You're making a mental note about what's predominant, what the mind is knowing. It's very powerful. But anyway, society is, you know, just correcting naturally, like reformations, right? Hey, relax, <laughs> you know, and just let whatever is coming, notice that it's being known. Instead of feeling like there's a somebody who's got to do something. So there's advantages and disadvantages. My point is that uh, we have to kind of figure this out for ourselves instead of getting religious or getting fixed on a particular technique. That's why it's really nice like when we get this list, because it inspires a kind of curiosity, okay? 
parent here and now, timeless, leading inward, encouraging investigation, realizable by the wise, right? It's, it's kind of throwing the heart back on itself. And then the question is, well, what gets in the way of this more, like if it's here and now, what's getting in the way of connecting? And the thing is, these hindrances, whatever it is that hinders are that natural presence and the natural freedom, because we've touched freedom. We might not have recognized it in the moment, but there are moments when the mind, the activity of the mind, is somewhat in line with reality. And so, you know, we, we even have words in English like being in the flow, right? being in the groove. And, um, but we tend to wrongly attribute like the particular circumstance, oh, that felt nice, I felt free because I was in the woods, as opposed to my mind wasn't constructing meaning that I identified with, and I created this vortex of hell that I lived inside of. Because right? it's really more about what wasn't there, not so much the woods were there or I was with my friends or whatever, but what wasn't there? And so that's the thing with the hindrances, like when you notice the mind is greedy or when you notice that there's aversion or you notice that there's physical pain and the not liking of the physical pain or there's boredom and the not liking of the boredom or there's doubt or the mind is dull or you feel wired, restless, worried, anxious. What's interesting is to, like that fresh way, it's like, is this in itself a problem? The pain in the body, the anxiety, the doubt, the craving, is it a problem? See that the assumption, the view, is this is a problem for me, and then any thinking is going to be in that context, that this is a problem for me. And whenever we look at that problem, it's going to look like a problem for me, the way we perceive it. So we're kind of locked in. So awareness practice is a way of stepping outside of that oppressive loop which is, it's much more radical than we might originally think, this wise attention, where we're seeing, we're training the heart in that, you know, that quality of receptivity and openness. Because we want reality, Dhamma, to reveal itself. You know, you, sometimes we even use that word allowing, allowing. Can I allow this to be? Is this safe to just allow? 
It's like uh, Joko Beck had this great little teaching called ABC, a bigger container. It's an acronym. You can remember that. ABC, a bigger container. And it's kind of like learning to step back. Even though we're not actually stepping back, we're really stepping in. The stepping back means maybe you don't really know what this is. Maybe I don't even know how to be with this. Let me, can I just let this reveal itself? Joseph Goldstein, I thought, had a nice set of instructions for uh, working with the hindrances. Let me see if I can remember them. I don't think I bought them. Um, well, the one I was thinking about was uh, letting, don't believe, well, there's two that I'm remembering right now. Uh, don't believe the thought, I can't practice with this. That's a really useful one. So you, you're struggling with pain, anxiety, doubt, sleepiness, restlessness, wanting, wanting to know, know what's happening in the world or whatever. And then, <clears throat> okay, I gotta deal with this so I can get back to my practice. That's how we often will frame it. Hey, well, don't believe that thought. That's just a thought being known. Because whatever it is, it's a phenomena being known. So we reduce it to that, that undeniable truth. This is something being felt. This is something being known. It's just that. And that's a big move. And you can use that inner language. Like you could talk to yourself in this way. Just to ground yourself with, just on an intellectual level with the Buddhist frame. Okay, I don't know much, but I know that this is something being experienced right now. It's just a phenomena being known here and now. It's just this. And whatever thoughts I have about it, those thoughts are something being known here and now. No thought is reality. It's a thought. That's what a thought is. It's a thought. It's not reality. But we, this is the part of that delusion I was talking about that involves view, thinking, and perception, is thinking, perceptions, and view stand in for reality. But they're, they're not, clearly. That's why it's really important to have Dharma friends where you can tell them these stories about how deluded we are. I'll give another example, just we're running out of time, but just to show how deluded. Uh, this is a retreat I went to to teach. Um, I think I was going out to IMS in Massachusetts to teach, and I was waiting for my flight at the gate. I went to the bathroom. And I was in the urinal, and it was a place they had recently renovated. It was quite nice, you know, like nice, like marble or nice stone and <laughs> privacy things. It was like a little booth almost that the urinal was in. And I was there, and it was like the music was so nice. <laughs> and I was like, that's me. They must have a speaker in every one of these little booths. <laughs> and I, I was just totally convinced. And then I was, I was just kind of doing my thing, and, and I was like, and it's just so amazing that the song that they're playing is actually in one of my playlists. <laughs> and then I, I, I went, I left to, you know, wash my hands and walked in, in line to get out of the plane, I was like, 
when they did the renovation, they just, they must have little speakers everywhere. Because <laughs> it was still playing. And it was only, somehow I had, when I put my phone in my pocket, I had triggered and the speaker was up. So I was just, and it, this was like five to 15 minutes, you know, where I was just like in awe of how much money the airport spent on their sound system. Yeah. And if we can do that, just because uh, it's very protecting for us to think from, from an egoic, a self-centered point of view, to think that we know what's going on. So this meaning-making business that our mind is about, it is really not that different than uh, finding a secure shelter. I mean, it's really synonymous with survival because on a psychological level, survival is related to thinking we know what's going on. So that's why it's some real work because with awareness practice, we're abandoning we're not abandoning the meaning-making, because that's on steroids, it's going to keep doing what it's doing. But what we're abandoning is the, um, the alignment with the meaning-making of the mind, the thinking. We're not taking it personally. We're seeing it as something being known. That's just the mind thinking. You know, now it's thinking this, now it's thinking that. Some of the thoughts seem relatively sublime and wise. Some of the thoughts are just you know, not worthy of anything. Some of them are truly despicable, right? And we have all of them, right? All of those thoughts. And then um, when we realize that, then we can really start getting into these, start deconstructing what's hindering presence. And we really see how powerful presence is. The whole world falls apart very quickly because the whole world is a house of cards made up by our meaning-making. And that's why Nibbana, the word Nibbana, is all about this implosion. You know, you know the word literally means ex uh, extinguishing. Something is extinguished. The image the Buddha uses is, uh, you know, you have a fire, and he gave this example to someone who was asking, um, like what happens to the Buddha when you die, you know, an awakened one. And uh, <clears throat> he says, well, imagine you had a fire and you kept putting twigs and logs and stuff on it. What would happen? Well, that fire would keep burning for a long, long time. Then he says, well, what happens if you stop putting logs and twigs on it? Well, the fire would go out. And then where would you say the fire goes? Well, it went out. So this is like us, this as a suffering being, it goes out when the ca causes and conditions that support it aren't there. And uh, the causes and conditions that support it is the attachment, the identification with that perception, thinking, view never ceases. So it's the stability of present moment awareness where we see perception, thinking, meaning, making, view. We see it for what it is. It's mental phenomena being known. That's what the stability of awareness does. So whether it's greedy mind or aversive mind or 
dull mind or restless mind or doubting mind. It's just those, that dynamic of, you know, what we could casually call the thinking mind. Oh yeah, that's what the mind does. Just like weather, you know, sometimes it's stormy and sometimes it's pleasant. It's just that. So the Buddha says that, uh, i just read the, all wholesome mind states are rooted in wise attention. <laughs> Freedom, love, kindness, generosity, patience, forgiveness, you know, whatever wholesome qualities we could imagine, they're all rooted in wise attention. All the health, hell realms that we inhabit are rooted in unwise attention. We're not seeing things as they are. So be interested in like things that appear to be a problem, whatever it is. And then remember this like wise attention to this thing that seems a problem and unwise. Unwise attention is thinking that the story that this is a problem reflects reality. And wise attention is this opening, like, well, let, let, let's allow this to reveal itself, to express itself. Nobody needs to interpret it. I don't have to, I mean, the mind, the meaning-making mind will apply meaning, but no, no. Because it's not about the meaning. It's not about what we tell ourselves this is. We're experiencing it in a more immediate, direct way. Like I can feel the cool air, maybe from that vent, blowing on me. But that experience of coolness does not depend on me knowing the word coolness or having language or grammar to convey it to you. Or like somehow that it's connected is some air conditioning unit, mini split out there, right? The cool, the, the experience of coolness and me liking it or not liking it is something that can be known in a very direct, intuitive way. And it isn't dependent on any meaning. And that's where we're going with this awareness. It's just learning on a deeper, more subtle level. And that's a new place for us. So that's why it's so hard, because we want to do it on the level where we're making up meaning about what we're doing. And we have to be like infants again, you know. We have to leave behind that part of the mind that wants to understand conceptually. And we just have to enter the Dhamma stream. So I'm a little bit over, so I'll leave it here so we have a good 20 minutes. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.